following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. Good morning. I want to welcome you to Fellowship Bible Church this morning. Glad that you're able to be here and join us today. We'll be back again tonight. Uh, if, if this isn't enough for you, I hope it's not. Uh, you can come back at 6 o'clock. We'll be in Matthew chapter 13. We're starting a section of scripture that you may have some questions on because it, if you thought about it uh, at all, it speaks about the mysteries of the kingdom. And you might just wonder, what in the world does that mean? And so we're going to start looking at uh, chapter 13. It's a kind of a 12 and 13 are a real hinge point in Matthew's gospel as to what was happening with the Lord and his ministry and and uh, his upcoming uh, sacrifice uh, later on in the book of Matthew as it's recorded. We're going to turn our Bibles to Ezekiel this morning and just continue on in our reading there. This is a lengthy chapter. I think I'm going to give it in two pieces here. Ezekiel chapter 20. Ezekiel 20, it came to pass in the seventh year in the fifth month on the tenth day of the month that certain of the elders of Israel came to inquire of the Lord and sat before me. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, speak to the elders of Israel and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, have you come to inquire of me? As I live, says the Lord God, I will not be inquired of by you. Will you judge them, son of man? Will you judge them? Then make known to them the abomination of their fathers. Say to them, thus says the Lord God, On the day when I chose Israel and raised my hand in an oath to the descendants of the house of Jacob, made myself known to them in the land of Egypt, I raised my hand in an oath to them, saying, I am the Lord your God. On that day I raised my hand in an oath to them to bring them out of the land of Egypt into a land that I had searched out for them, flowing with milk and honey, the glory of all lands. Then I said to them, Each of you throw away the abominations which are before his eyes and do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. But they rebelled against me and would not obey me. They did not all cast away the abominations which were before their eyes, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. Then I said, I will pour out my fury on them and fulfill my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. But I acted for my namesake, that it should not be profane before the Gentiles among whom they were, in whose sight I had made myself known to them, to bring them out of the land of Egypt." Therefore, I made them go out of the land of Egypt and brought them into the wilderness. And I gave them my statutes and showed them my judgments, which, if a man does, he shall live by them. Moreover, I also gave them my Sabbaths to be a sign between them and me, that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. Yet the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. They did not walk in my statutes. They despised my judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. And they greatly defiled my Sabbaths. Then I said I would pour out my fury on them in the wilderness to consume them. But I acted for my namesake, that it should not be profaned before the Gentiles in whose sight I had brought them out. 
So I also raised my hand in an oath to them in the wilderness that I would not bring them into the land which I had given them, flowing with milk and honey, the glory of all lands, because they despised my judgments and did not walk in my statutes, but profane my Sabbaths, for their heart went after their idols. Nevertheless, my eye spared them from destruction. I did not make an end of them in the wilderness. i just pause here in these 17 verses and ask, you, you notice how many times God was going to, but then didn't punish them? What grace. Verse 18, But I, I said to their children in the wilderness, Do not walk in the statutes of your fathers, nor observe their judgments, nor defile yourselves with their idols. I am the Lord your God. Walk in my statutes. Keep my judgments and do them. Hallow my Sabbaths. That means set them apart. Set them apart as special to God. And they will be a sign between me and you that you may know that I am the Lord your God. You know, just realizing I had kind of overlooked this passage as regarding the sign nature of the Sabbath. It's elsewhere mentioned in scriptures and I think in... Uh, Exodus. But here twice God is saying, the Sabbath is a sign between me and the people of Israel. Verse 21, notwithstanding the children rebelled against me and did not walk in my statutes, they were not careful to observe my judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. But they profaned my Sabbaths. Then I said, I would pour out my fury on them and fulfill my anger against them in the wilderness. Nevertheless, I withdrew my hand and acted for my namesake that it should not be profaned in the sight of the Gentiles, in whose sight I had brought them out. Suppose the, real, the reason why his name would be profaned would, because, would be because of a misinterpretation of God's action against the people of Israel. You know, if God punished them, then the Gentiles would falsely say, well, see, he just brought them out in order to punish them, without kind of thinking the next step, like, why did he do that? Well, because of the disobedience of the people of Israel is the answer. Verse 23, Also I raised my hand in an oath to those in the wilderness that I would scatter them among the Gentiles and disperse them throughout the countries because they had not executed my judgments but had despised my statutes, profaned my Sabbaths, and their eyes were fixed on their father's idols. Therefore I also gave them up to statutes that were not good and judgments by which they could not live. And I pronounced them unclean because of their ritual gifts that they caused all their firstborn, in that they caused all their firstborn to pass through the fire, that I might make them desolate and that they might know that I am the Lord. We'll pause there and let that sink in for a week and come back to it the next time. Amen. I welcome you to turn your Bibles to the epistle to the Philippians this morning. We're still in chapter 1, verses 19 through 26. Our subject matter this morning is not uh, Christmas material. That will be next week, but, uh, and probably maybe the week after that as well. But uh, the title of the message this morning is Christ Honored in Life and in Death. Christ Honored in Life and in Death. Paul here is going to tell us that he trusted he'd be delivered to minister longer for God, but if not, that Christ would be honored in him anyway. And so let's read the text and think about this. What we're going to do or see this morning, I hope, is two things mainly. One, 
think about your, your perspective on life as it compares to the Apostle Paul's perspective. And secondly, think about your life as it compares or contrasts with that of the Philippian believers. We're going to see two kind of key things. One, as we think of Paul. One, as we think of the audience to whom he's writing. And I trust that it will be beneficial for you. The Apostle Paul writes in verses 19 through 26, For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me... This is Paul's estimation of things. To live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what I shall choose I cannot tell, for I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. So Paul was, remember, in prison. That's the background of what he's talking about here. He's facing a Supreme Court kind of decision that could determine whether he lives or dies, whether he's free or imprisoned. And so he was not completely sure how things would turn out, uh, whether it be released from prison and life, or condemnation and a death sentence. Later on in the book of Timothy, we recall, if you do, that he said that he had been delivered from the mouth of the lion, which I take to mean that he was not subjected to being killed by a ravenous beast, as they did sometimes in Rome. Okay, Talk about cruel and unusual punishments. You can't even imagine some of the things that were done by those people in their wickedness and their hatred. So he was delivered from that, which is good, but church history tells us he was beheaded, right? Which is not nice either. But this is where Paul is is at. He's in the prison, which we think he got out of, and then he went back to, basically, and was killed later on. But So if you're in that situation, put yourself there. You know, you might think I've got a good case. I've got great lawyers. They might even help me get out of this. It looks good, but you never know. You know, until in this case, there's no jury of your peers here. In this case, if uh, the the Caesar or whoever is the administrative uh, judge uh, takes care of, uh, who takes care of these sorts of cases, doesn't like you, then you're done. So he wasn't sure how things would turn out, but he had a good idea where the outcome seemed to be headed. In fact, if you go to Philippians 2.24, you'll see he says, But I trust in the Lord that I myself shall also come shortly. So he's sending Epaphroditus, but... uh, Or Timothy, actually, and Epaphroditus later on, but he's, I'm going to come myself also. So I don't think this is just a wishful thinking on his part. He's trusting in the Lord, and he knows something is uh, going down, as it were. 
But let's see a little bit more about how he thinks about this situation. So in verses 19 to 20, Paul is saying that he wants Christ to be magnified, glorified, no matter what the outcome ends up being. Remember, he said in 19, I I know this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of of the Spirit, according to my earnest expectation and hope. Um, And then he talks about Christ being magnified in his body, whether by life or by death. So Paul was confident that through the prayers of his fellow believers and the work of the Holy Spirit, you see there are two uh, means there, if you will, two ways of rescue for him, that this would result in his deliverance, the prayers of God's people and the work of the Holy Spirit. Notice, please, both are necessary. Both are necessary. God sovereignly has chosen that not only will he work through his spirit in this case, but also that he would work through the prayers of his people. So don't, you know, don't go all fatalistic or hard deterministic on us here now in your philosophy. God uses your prayers. Don't just say, well, God's going to do what God's going to do, you know, which is almost another version of, you know, que sera, sera, right? What will be, will be um, without any you know, involvement of us. No, through your prayers and through the work of the Holy Spirit, both of them are necessary elements to what God is doing. And Paul says, I'm going to be delivered. Now, in the commentaries, there's some debate about what deliverance is he talking about here. And I've already, you know, told you basically what I think of it. Is it deliverance from prison? I think so. Or deliverance to final salvation, some have suggested. Some have given some other options as well, but those seem to be the two main points. It seems unlikely to me that the Apostle Paul is talking about deliverance to final salvation um, because he knows that he's going to heaven regardless of the outcome of this trial, of this legal wrangling that's going on. So I take him to mean deliverance from the prison. And somehow he had that confident expectation that he was going to get out at least this time to be able to continue Uh, his ministry. So he was heaven-bound regardless of that. You know, by the way, um, that you don't have all of what salvation is going to give you yet, right? So the commentators are not saying some, you know, totally crazy thing when they say that he's awaiting his final salvation. They are reflecting that we know we have been saved We are being saved, which mainly means we're being sanctified, and we will be saved. We will be saved from the presence of sin and from our own sin-cursed bodies in this sinful world in which we are. We haven't gotten that yet, but we shall as Christian people uh, by and by. So, and we're confident of that, whether uh, because, well, because we know God has promised eternal life and we have that assurance from not only based on his promises, but also based on his work in us through regeneration and sanctification. Now, Paul goes on and he says, I don't want to be ashamed of my place and service in Christ. I want to be a bold witness for Jesus and for the gospel. Think of, again, yourself in his shoes. You say to yourself as a faithful believer, man, I don't want to say anything or do anything that will bring shame to Christ or that, will, that I will be ashamed of or regret later. You know what I'm saying? I don't, I don't want to do, you know, even though I could be restored, like Peter was, 
I don't really want to go down that road of denying the Lord and weeping bitterly and you know, then having to be restored and all of that. That's a, that's a shameful kind of thing. I don't want that. I don't want to be ashamed, uh, you know, especially I know when the Lord returns, I don't want to be ashamed before him at his coming. So he wants to be a bold witness for Christ. Remember uh, Romans 1.16, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Ephesians chapter 6, he asks the believers there in Ephesus, would you pray for me that I would speak with all boldness like I ought to speak? Shall we pray that for one another? That we would speak with all boldness like we ought to speak? Of course, with all kindness and love, but with all boldness. He doesn't want to deny Jesus. You know, think about any displeasure. If you comp- This is what he, kind of his thinking. If I compare the displeasure that I might feel uh, from Christ if I dishonor him versus the displeasure of the Roman authorities because they don't like what my beliefs and practices are, which of those displeasures is more important to me? Well, obviously, the one of Christ. They can do whatever they're going to do, but as long as I continue to honor Christ, that's what I want, Paul is saying. His utmost desire is that Christ would be glorified. And he says about how he's going to accomplish that or how that is accomplished in general in uh, verse number 20 with this With all boldness, as always, uh, so now also Christ would be magnified. And by the way, when he says, as always, I think he might be reflecting back in his ministry. Do you know how he was bold in his ministry? So bold that he got himself stoned nearly to death, shipwrecked, beaten, prison, all this sort of stuff. He didn't hold back, and that caused him all kinds of problems. So as always, so now also, that I won't give up in the end that Christ would be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. So how do you magnify the Lord in your life? Well, the instrument that you use is that body in which you sit right now. You glorify God with your body. You, You yield to Him your members as instruments of righteousness. The way that you magnify Christ outwardly to others is your body. The way they see the glory of Christ, because they can't see your thoughts, they can't see your desires, but others can see in how we conduct ourselves in our speech and our actions. We use our bodies to glorify Him. And Paul is saying he's so serious about honoring Christ that he wants to do so in his life and even in his death. He wants to die this is, a, this is an old phrase. He wants to die well for God so that no disrepute is brought to Christ and that he will have nothing to be ashamed of before the Lord Jesus. That's a pretty high thing, isn't it? A pretty high calling, a pretty high thought. Now, when he looks at this situation of living or dying, Here's where I want you to really perk up your ears now and think, how do I look at life compared to how Paul looked at life? He's he's kind of thinking of this living or dying, Um, Christ or gain, Uh, fruit from my labor or far better. There's there's a a tension that's going on in his, his life, and he's saying in verse 21, 
you know, I want to, I want to, I want to honor Christ, whether I live or die. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. There's the summary of the whole mentality that he has about life. His estimation of life is that living is Christ and dying is gain. Both are good. He can live to honor Jesus, or he can die to honor Jesus, which is then going to result in even better than what the best life has to offer in in his present life. And that's the case for us as well. If he lives, listen, this is important now, if he lives, he can serve God more. Why do you live anyway? Why do you live anyway? If you can live, if you live, you can serve God more. And thus he can reap, Paul can reap more fruit from that service. That is the way that Christ can be more magnified in his body. Uh, what is his labor? It's Christian ministry. What is the fruit? Well, what do you think the fruit is? People saved, people sanctified, churches planted, churches growing, people on their way to heaven, people worshiping God and Jesus Christ, people becoming more like Jesus. That's, his, that's the fruit of what he's talking about. And that fruit will result in reward for the Apostle Paul. Uh, but, you know, Paul doesn't look at it like, oh, I'm just doing this to kind of accumulate up, you know, reward to myself. Although, the Lord did say to us, remember, what did he say about treasures in heaven? Store up treasures in heaven, not on the earth where moth and rust and thieves and all of that. There's nothing wrong with thinking about if I am more faithful to God that he will reward me for that faithfulness. That's okay. Paul wants that fruit. He serves God because it's God's pleasure for him to serve. It's his duty for him to serve. Think of um, the Lord's words in Luke 17 when he talks about the parable of the servant there and and he says you know the servant says we're just unprofitable servants doing what is our duty to do paul was saved to serve and it honors god for more people to come to faith in the lord jesus christ let me read uh, for you hebrews 9 and verse uh, 14 where it says i think it's 9:14 yes it says how much uh, more shall the blood of christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to do what? To serve the living God. That's, our, that's why we exist. If you were to ask yourself, why am I here? You know, Don't go out on some long journey to try to find yourself. Go into the Bible to find out why you're here. It'll tell you you're here to serve God. Now, that's if Paul lives, he can serve God more and reap more fruit. If he dies, what happens? Well, this question always comes up. What happens when when somebody dies? People who are a little, you know, not maybe instructed in a church like ours wonder about that question. Maybe you wonder about that question. What happens when someone dies? If they are a believer in Christ, his soul leaves his body and goes to heaven, immediately to live with Christ. He also gets to be with all the other believers that have gone before, but they're not the main attraction. Christ is the main attraction of heaven. If the apostle dies as a martyr, Christ is honored, and and Paul only 
this time in death instead of in life. Now, notice, this is a doctrinal point here, Paul is completely confident that he will be with Christ. We might not um, think about it from this passage. There's another passage we more frequently use, uh, and that is in 2 Corinthians 5 when he says, you know, absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Um, And we understand it the same way that we understand this. Paul is utterly confident that he will be with Christ. Do you think he had some idea in his mind that he's going to enter into a state of suspended animation? That he's going to go into a state of soul sleep? That he's going to go to purgatory to burn off some of his sins for a while? There's none of that in the scriptures, my friend. There's no such thing as purgatory. There's no such thing as soul sleep. There's no such thing as suspended animation. Sorry to all you sci-fi fans out there. Uh, Suspended animation is not a thing, okay? When your brain cells don't have oxygen for about five minutes, you're done, okay? Yeah, so uh, no matter how long people try to find the fountain of youth or the magic leaves of this tree or... or, uh, you know, some scientific breakthrough of, you know, super fast cryogenic freezing. It is appointed unto men once to die, and then the judgment. You can't get around it. It is a law of nature. So Paul is utterly confident that when he dies, he is going to be with Christ. Those other ideas that I mentioned, soul sleep and all that, are false teachings that are out of accord with the, with the Christian scriptures. Well, how do you know that, Pastor? Because the Bible tells me so. That's the only way that we can know. It's not on my authority. It's not on my made-up, you know, uh, cleverness or anything like that. It's based on the authority of God's Word where we get this. So for the Christian then, to summarize, there are two right options. Living for Christ or going to be with Christ. If you live, you can continue in Christian ministry If you die, then you go to the far better state of being with Christ. Now, there's another option that people often choose. It's not living for Christ or going to be with Christ. It is living for self. Right? That's not how Paul... Paul didn't give us three options here. He said, I can live for Christ or I can go to be with him. Those are the two options. Now, let's put aside living for self because we know that it's wrong, even though we do it too much. But let us think about the two, two options before us, okay? The two legitimate options before us, to live or to die and go with, to be with Christ. Which one's better? Which one's better? Now think carefully. And don't just tell me which, you know, this is not a Sunday school class where I'm looking for you to give me the answer I want to hear. You're going to get the answer that you should get from the scriptures, but I'm going to challenge you to tell me or think with me about what your answer honestly is in your life. Paul, look look at what he says. I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. And so he says, I'm going to stick around a little while, verse 25. And then that's going to have some good results to it. But 
He's looking at this and he's saying, what am I going to do? What, what is my, you know, I'm facing the Romans could certainly accelerate my, uh, uh, my departure, let's say it that way, and make it a little faster than what I would like to have it be, perhaps, from the perspective of a, a living human being. But he's saying, I honestly have a tough time choosing between the two options. And that's where I want you to get in your thinking this morning. This is what, what he means when he says, I'm hard-pressed between the two. The desire to go to Christ weighs against his desire to stay, but he feels that there's a weight on the side of staying that is against going to be with Christ right now because there are benefits to both situations, because there's real fruit, there's real needs among the people in, in the Roman Empire for more churches to be planted, for the gospel to be propagated, there's real reward, and there's real satisfaction for Paul or anyone who's living for God to be able to serve God. Now, Paul doesn't get to make the choice. Make sure you understand that. He's just saying, hypothetically, if I'm to choose, what do I choose? Uh, it's, it's all based on God's sovereign decree as to what is going to happen. But, but hypothetically, if, if I had to make a choice, what am I going to choose? He honestly cannot say. Is that odd to you? Do you think that's strange? You know, in, in his situation, he has to cast himself on the Lord's mercies and just say, Lord, whatever your will is, whatever, it's your choice. My times are in your hands. But if you, not Paul now, you sitting in the pews here at Fellowship Bible Church or sitting on your couch watching this at your TV or computer, if you have to answer the question, which place do you want to be? Here to serve God or there with Christ? Do you have a favorite or is it a toss-up as to which one's better? I suspect that naturally many of us would pick the choice, I want to live on in the flesh. Not in the flesh in terms of sin, but just in my body. I want to live. I have a desire to, to live. We're familiar with this state. We love it. We do not want to leave it. We don't have an unnatural desire to leave it. We have so much to do, some of us. I hope none of you are bored. I know in young people sometimes it's, you know, I'm bored. How, can I, how could I be bored? You know, I might not... I might not cherish every little thing that I have to do as much as every other little thing because there are some duties that have to be done, you know, but um, there's plenty to do, that's for sure. But, you know, we have so much to do. We love our families. Uh, you know, maybe the practical reality is that for you, for you, you would write this in reverse. You would say, going to be with Christ is good, but to continue living is far better. That's not what Paul said. He said to go to be with Christ is far better. Okay, are you with me? So if, if, if your inclination is, no, I've got to stay here at all costs, I can't, I can't think about going to heaven, I want you to pause for a moment and reflect. Reflect about this. Do you really want to live on in your body so that you can experience more of Christ? Or is, is that why you want to live? Or is it that you have other underlying motivations? such as love for the world. Are you not ready yet to die? Maybe you're not sure if you're saved or not. 
Well, that's, yeah, you don't want to go, you don't want to make your exit then. You've got to know the Lord. You have to be saved. You have to believe that Jesus died for your sins and rose again. You have to confess your sin to him. You have to come into a personal relationship with him. Then you'll be ready to really live. Is your mind set on things above? If you're inclined to stay here, to stay here, to stay here, or is your mind focused on the things on the earth? Are you so earthly-minded that you're no heavenly good? Do you dismiss the glory of being with Christ? I mean, if you don't see any benefit to going to be with Christ, if you say, well, it's kind of ethereal, it's kind of theoretical, it's, I don't really know, I mean, it's, it, doesn't, it just seems like death is a really bad thing. And do, you, do, you, do you really believe, Paul, when he says to be with Christ is far better? Or in effect, do you say, no, Paul, sorry, you know, that's your truth, that's not my truth. No, it is your truth. Because if you think opposite of God's truth, you know, that's the one funny thing I was just thinking about. Everybody is entitled to their truth today. My truth, your truth, his truth, her truth, everybody's truth. Isn't God entitled to his truth? Absolutely. We've got to listen to what God's truth is. Everybody wants their own truth. Well, let God have a chance at his truth too, you know. Anyway, um, you know, do you doubt what Paul says, that being with Christ is far better, or, or do you really believe what he says? Another possibility is, so that, that possibility is, you know, you're inclined to want to stay in life. Another possibility is that you're done with life. You see no value in continuing in it. You want to leave now for heaven. You think it would be far better for your situa- compared to your situation presently. I want you to stop and think about this, Okay. Are you so discontent with the state of your life as God has given it to you that you do not appreciate God's good gifts? Are you discouraged and not seeing the utterly tremendous potential and value of your own life? Are you missing that in life there's a great opportunity to love God and to serve others and to to love your neighbors and to minister the saving gospel to other people? Where is your mindset? Depressed, anxious, discontent? Or is it a mindset of joy and satisfaction in what God has done and provided for you? Uh, Are you resting in God? Are you even suicidal? You want to make a quick exit? Listen, are you letting God be God or are you rebelling against Him? You need to ponder this text carefully. The, the, the Apostle Paul is saying there is a, an, an exceeding value to life. Now, I could, we could go down this path and think about this a whole lot more together with profit. If you want to do that, come and see me right away. Okay? Right away. Don't, don't even ponder down that path very far at all. Just stop and say, I need to talk to somebody and get some assistance. Because if you're thinking life is not worth it, you are not dealing with what God has said through Paul here. Okay? Maybe it is that you don't have Christ in your life and you don't see the hope that we have in life. You won't see the value in life that Christians can see. But if you're a saved person, maybe you've just 
for a time, lost sight of the Lord. And your eyes are so consumed with what's on, going on around you that you've lost sight of the beautiful image of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, perhaps, perhaps, this is kind of a subset of this, you know, so remember where we are. If you're kind of thinking of this question, live or die, go to heaven, and you're kind of on this side, you're saying, man, stay here at all costs, every, do everything, spare no expense. I want to stay here as long as possible, kind of putting aside this idea of heaven. That's one thing. Over here is I'm done with life, I'm finished, I'm on my way. A subset of this is not just the person in despair, but the person maybe who is afflicted by the frailties of old age. You're experiencing advanced age, you're ready for God to take you home, that's okay. But you still have to be patient with God's timing because God gives and God takes away as he pleases. If he has you here still, he has you here still, and I'm speaking to everybody that I've ministered to who's in advanced age, uh, and hopefully many of you who will be in advanced age, although you might not remember me saying this today, but maybe you will, or maybe you'll go back and read these notes. God has you here for his own good reasons. Now, you may say, I don't know what those reasons are, but you know what? You don't have to know them specifically because you can honor God You can praise him, you can pray to him, you can testify about him, you can thank him, you can generally live for him. Those are enough reason for you to be here without having to ask some special, like, why does God let me live beyond, you know, 85 years old and I'm not able to do much and all of that sort of thing. No, God's not done with you yet. And I've had the sense as a pastor, as I observe folks, I say, yeah, God's not finished with him yet or her yet. There's more sanctification. There's some things that maybe they are a little blind to that they need to grow in. And plus, there's a whole lot of encouragement and ministry that they can do while they're here. So don't get so kind of consumed with yourself that you forget that God has created you. You don't belong to yourself. You are his. Now, there are some among us who may look at both of these options, you know, live and serve Christ or or die and go to to heaven, we might look at those not as I prefer one strongly to the other, but we look at both of them and say, they're both wicked evil. I got to pick the lesser of two evils, you know, kind of like you do when you go to the ballot box. You just say, oh, I got to pick this guy or this guy. You know, well, this one's less evil than this one, so I'll go with him. Uh, Is that how you look at life? You know, staying here is bad. Leaving is also not desirable. Well, this is the worst way to look at things. We don't pick as if they're the lesser of two evils. Look at how Paul looks at it. How does Paul look at it? There are two options before me. Neither of them are bad. Neither of them are bad. I can live for Christ. So where I want your head to be is not, you know, lesser of two evils, not life at all costs, or not leaving early and getting out of here. And, and forgetting about the benefits of life, but to be right in the middle where Paul is, Paul is expressing the correct attitude. Whether to go or to stay, I'm hard-pressed to make that decision. I don't know. It's difficult to choose because there are values in both. I'm going to be satisfied perfectly either way, trusting God to have me just where 
he wants me, satisfied uh, to serve here or in heaven. One is good, the other is even better, but not so much better that it wipes out the good of being in this present life. In fact, it's the supreme blessedness of our next life that makes this life in part so much worth living, doesn't it? What you do here affects your standing there, in a sense, your status, your reward. What's going to happen there means that you want to drag along a bunch of other people with you, and it's useful for you to be here. And there, you know, besides kind of religious responsibilities, there are just life things that God wants humans to do, to occupy until he comes, not just in terms of evangelistic ministry, but you have a stewardship in your family, over your things, over your property, you know, your little, your little Adam and Eves out there stewarding the, the gardens that God has given to you. You have a responsibility to keep up those things and to be good citizens in this world and to promote righteousness in this place in which we live. Lots of useful things that we can do. But for Paul, the more needful thing, he says in verse 24, is to remain in the flesh for them. Paul knew that there were some needs there in Philippi and also for the other Gentiles that he was going to minister to. And I think Paul was privy to certain information that we don't have or have access to. Somehow he knew that God was planning for him to remain on in the flesh for a while. Uh, His work could be completed, particularly amongst the Philippians, but also uh, in other areas. So he had some confidence that, okay, my legal ordeal is about to come to a close. It's going to turn out okay so I could continue my work. And what is his work? Well, his work is God's work. Remember, God said, Paul said, I'm confident that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul was doing. God was using Paul in in that work to help them work out their own salvation. If that doesn't sound familiar to you, look at Philippians 2.12. He says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That's Bible. Paul's release from prison would result in what? Look at verse 25 at the end. Your progress and joy of faith. Their joy would be, first of all, that they're planting church missionary was alive and hadn't been killed by the Romans. Just imagine your founding pastor or your present pastor or your pastor, if you're online from Hiawatha, was killed by the governing authorities. That would not be a very joyful situation, would it? Very painful, very devastating. Not because they're like some superhuman person, but because they were used by God to help you progress in the faith and to point you to God's word and so on. But with Paul coming back, they would be joyful. They'd be built up in the faith. They would have a general joy that would come along with their Christian growth. Don't you have that? Don't you have a sense of joy when you see that you are growing in the faith, that you're learning the word of God, that you're becoming more holy, that you're making better choices than you were before? Doesn't that give you some sense of joy? Not like, you know, haha, I'm so good. But God is at work in my life? That is a happy thing. 
Over 450 verses in the Bible talk about joy or rejoicing. God is not, has not designed us to go around with the poochy lip disease. Okay? We talk about that with our kids, but we can get it too. We just express it in more advanced adult ways than the kids do. But let's not go around like that. We have lots to be joyful about. The progress of faith that he talks about entails the knowledge of God's word and improved practice of godliness. Uh, it's a whole, you know, a whole life thing, not just an academic or intellectual thing. Now, we cannot say, like Paul, for certain, that God's plan is for us to stay for a long time. I would like to think, now I'm reflecting on my own self, I would like to think that God is not done with me for a good long while and that I have many fruitful years of ministry left. Um, not merely because our life is good, which it is, but because life is ministry, and ministry is good, and God is good. And I could use some more time to work on sanctification and an opportunity to gain some more reward for faithful service. I look at the life that I have lived, and I say there's a lot of shortcomings. There's a lot of areas that I could fill in the, the, the gaps, so to speak, that I could do better for God. Besides, living and serving God is my duty as a child of God. I am his servant. You see yourself that way? That's what makes life good because you can serve the king of kings. Life is ministry and it's rich and it's full of great opportunities. Live it to the fullest. Like Solomon said, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all of your might, because there's no doing after you're done with this life. You have one life to live, and you need to live it to the fullest for God. So like Paul, we can have a sense that as long as God is not ready to call us heavenward, we should have this mindset, to live is Christ, to minister for fruit, to help other people grow in grace and joy in their faith, but when it comes time to die, then we can look forward to a far better situation. So that's Paul's mindset. Remember I told you we'd talk about two things today? How is your mindset compared to Paul's mindset about living and dying? And secondly, think about the Philippians. They are they're striving to make progress in their faith and in their joy. Are you doing the same? Those two applications for our message this morning. Let us pray. Lord, I pray that you would take those two thoughts that we have given in some detail this morning and help us to put them into practice in our minds and in our bodies by which we can bring honor to Christ, whether living or dying. Heavenly Father, may we look at life as a precious opportunity to serve you and to live for Christ and as death is going to be with Christ, which is far better. And being in a, in a hard place, as it were, between the two to have to hypothetically choose, but we thank you that we don't choose, you do. And you know just the right timing and the right circumstances, but help us to have the right mindset that would drive us, propel us forward in life to live for you and look forward to heaven with Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.